The topic we're going to touch on there, Jewish and Gentile believers who are in the tribulation can experience God's perfect peace. The title of the message, If You're Living in Trouble, You Came to the Right Peace. Let's pray. Lord, certainly uh, trouble is uh, kind of the bottom line in our world today and always has been, always will be until you come back. Each of us as believers, Lord, we're subject to tribulations and trials. But Lord, uh, we thank you that we won't be here for the great tribulation that is talked about in Scripture. Nevertheless, Lord, we can learn lessons and be encouraged by uh, looking at past and future history. Be here, Lord, to open our hearts to your word. May the, we have ears to hear what the Spirit says to us individually and to our church. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Pizza, pizza. The slogan lets you know Little Caesars was offering two pizzas for the price of one. De plain, de plain. Each episode of Fantasy Island began with Tattoo spotting the, the seaplane approaching and excitedly yelling, de plain, de plain. Meet, meet. Yeah, you're, some of you young ones don't know that because it's such a violent world out there. The violent world of the Roadrunner and Wiley Coyote, sponsored by the Acme Company. Now, we don't catch it reading an English translation of the Bible, but there's repetition like this in our text. It's in verse 3 in the words, perfect peace. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. If you look this up in, say, Strong's Concordance, you'll see that it reads, shalom, shalom. The word perfect isn't there. A grammar scholar wrote, in Semitic languages, when you want to emphasize a word, you repeat it two times. Thus, when your mind stays on God, you not only have peace, you have really good peace or perfect peace. As far as I could search it, this is the only occurrence of shalom, shalom in the Bible. Finding it here is humbling. Isaiah wrote about the time of Jacob's trouble, the seven-year great tribulation. It is hands down the worst time ever of trouble and tribulation on the earth for its inhabitants. Nevertheless, tribulation believers will experience God's peace in a big way. If tribulation saints can experience peace, it is humbling to realize that saints who have tribulations can as well. I'll organize my comments around two questions. Number one, do you believe the Lord's promise of peace? And number two, have you received the Lord who promises peace? Let's take a look at the promise itself in verses 1 through 9. Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum writes, While the verse clearly pertains to the faithful Jewish remnant of the tribulation, the principles of peace through trust in God can be applied to other believers as well. As we read the Bible, we need to be careful not to take things out of context and see them as pertaining to ourselves. Now, there, there's always a lesson, there's always an application, there's always meaning to every portion of Scripture, but everything cannot be claimed by us. Some things are uniquely to Israel, for example. But this is a universal promise of perfect peace. It says, whoever's mind is stayed on the Lord, whoever, then they can know this perfect peace or this peace, peace. It was a terrible time for the Jews in the southern kingdom of Judah. Isaiah, inspired by God the Holy Spirit, 
taught them prophecy. Knowing what the future holds is the Bible way of comforting us. It is the most practical teaching you can receive. Sometimes people say, get away from prophecy because it's not practical. We can't apply it in our daily lives. Uh, we need to know how we should live. Well, the, uh, it is the most practical teaching you can receive. The Apostle Peter, after discussing the end times at some length, says to us, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? A good paraphrase of that would be, the Lord's coming to resurrect and rapture the church is imminent. What should I pursuing, uh, be pursuing and doing right now? And so there's nothing really more practical than prophecy because it wakes me up to the fact that I, I could be in for one more twinkle of the eye and then the Lord will be here. And so that, that kind of urgency and anticipation really changes uh, all of our behavior. And so there's, there, and Paul the Apostle, I've told you, you know this, when the Thessalonian believers were sad because some of their loved ones were dying before the rapture, Paul said, look, I'm going to give you a, a prophecy study. Comfort each other with these words. This is what will really bring comfort. If you've ever stood uh, at a gravesite, maybe a loved one or just a family friend or something like that, there could be no greater comfort than to know that there will be a resurrection from the dead for all who believe, right? And that you will see your loved one again. And so it is comforting. Uh, Isaiah 26, verse 1. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God will appoint salvation for walls and bulwarks. That day is the time of Jacob's trouble that Jesus said was the great tribulation. Now, the Bible indicates there will be this seven-year period of time of trouble. We call it the Great Tribulation. It has tons of names in Scripture. But I like the name, the time of Jacob's trouble, that Jeremiah gave to it because it reminds us that its primary purpose is for God to bring the nation of Israel to salvation, that the promise that all Israel will be saved would be fulfilled. And so they're talking about that time of trouble, which is awful. You can read about it in Revelation 6 through 18. And here they are singing. You'd think that that was the last thing a Jew would do in the time of trouble. But this chapter is that song or songs. It reminds me of the Who's in Whoville who on Christmas morning after the Grinch has stole their presents are still rejoicing. And the Grinch can't stand it, right? And so the Jews in the future are going to be singing even in the midst of the great tribulation. Uh, because they recognize what God is doing in it, and that is bringing them to salvation. Jewish life revolved around Jerusalem and their temple. Tribulation Jews won't have a strong city in terms of brick and mortar. The Antichrist is going to control Jerusalem. He'll defile their temple. Midway through the tribulation, we read that there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. And so the city will be ruined during the tribulation, but they will have the Lord's salvation protecting them like no walls or bulwarks could. Ultimately, this spiritual protection of God's salvation is stronger than any building they could be in. The idea of a temple, a place where a holy God could meet with unrighteous sinners. Once that is completely solved and all the righteous are raised from the dead, no need for a temple anymore. 
In the Revelation, when John described conditions in eternity, he said, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. They are the temple in the sense that you now have immediate, personal, physical contact with Jesus and with God the Father and with God the Holy Spirit. And so why a building? Why put distance between you? Uh, and what a great thing that is. Uh, verse 2, open the gates that the righteous nation which keeps the truth may enter in. These prophets rapidly shifted gears. One minute they're in the tribulation, the next they're in the millennium that follows the tribulation. Then they'll double clutch to the eternity that follows the kingdom. The order of events as we understand it, resurrection and rapture of the church, it doesn't really start the next phase. It, it's in proximity to it, but when the Antichrist, a world leader, signs a peace treaty with Israel, that begins the seven-year time of Jacob's trouble. Jesus returns at the end of that in what is called his second coming. He puts down a rebellion, and then he sets up a kingdom. It lasts for a 1,000 years, and that's why it's called the millennium or the millennial kingdom, because millennial means 1,000 years in Latin. Um, and so that's, that's the order of events. In fact, some of you are reading for your devotions a chronological Bible. Nothing wrong with that. It, but it, at the same time, it does illustrate the fact that we like things to be systematized and uh, straightforward so that we can understand as much about them as possible from the get-go. God gave us the Bible the way it is so that we would have to think a little, dig a little, Meditate a lot upon it. Think of your Bible reading as if you were on a quest of biblical proportions, we might say, to discover everything you need for godly living. It seems hidden, but you have the ability to see it thanks to your being indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. But you have to, you have to get after it. You have to dig for it. You have to think about it uh, for God to show you these things. And one of the best ways of doing this, if you want to be practical, uh, take a section of Scripture most Bibles are uh, divided up into paragraphs, you know, or stories with a headline. Uh, take a section you're interested in uh, and just read it over and over and over again. Not, not just in one day, just like uh, just until your eyes fall out or anything like that. But over a period of time, just keep reading it and you'll start to notice repetitive words and phrases. God will start to remind you of other scriptures you've read or are reading. And pretty soon, he's speaking to you from that area of scripture. And you're, you know, you're mining it for all that it's worth in your life. And it's, a great, it's so great when the Lord shows you something personally. And so get into God's word in that way. Open the gates. That makes me think of a grand opening celebration. Now, didn't we say that Jerusalem is going to be ruined when the Lord returns in his second coming? Yes, but not to worry. The Lord is the king of extreme makeovers. Uh, when they move that bus, Jerusalem's going to be beautiful. The Old Testament prophet Daniel was told that there would be a 75-day waiting period following the Lord's return. One thing the Lord will probably be doing is restoring Jerusalem. It will have the grandest grand opening ever. When those gates swing open wide, no one knows that song, Second Service, either? Do you know that song? When those, when those gates swing open wide... I'm going to be by Jesus' side. I'm going to sing. I'm going to shout. Praise the Lord. So sorry for you. <laughs> because that's the song we're going to sing on that day. Better get with me afterward. No, I'm just kidding. But I am. 
showing my age, I guess. The righteous nation that keeps the truth, that's the remnant of Jews who survive the horrors of the tribulation and enter the kingdom promised them. Stop and underline that phrase, every nation ought to be a righteous nation that keeps the truth. That is God's goal or intent for every nation, that they be righteous and keep the truth. As we come into election season, uh-oh, Pastor Gene's finally going to talk about elections. When we come into election season, think upon that before you say anything or vote. The Bible says that righteousness, being right before God, exalts a nation. And here it says every nation ought to be a righteous nation that keeps the truth. Truth. So I don't have to tell you what to do or who to vote for or how to vote because you should choose and support what is right before God. Now, it might shock you for me to say that not all Christians agree. People in this very church might vote for different people. Please, don't rush the podium. Now, I'm, I'm being dramatic, but uh, choose righteousness. Not practicality, not pragmatism. I mean, righteousness exalts a nation. And, and, and make your vote count in heaven. Verse 3, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. This is the money verse applicable to all always. Here's some more from the language scholars. The word stayed comes from a Phoenician word used by sailors. They would tie themselves to a sturdy part of the ship, like the mast, so that they would not be swept overboard during a violent storm. Immediately we ask, how? How do I keep my mind stayed on the Lord? What are the steps? What is the discipline? More and more I'm adopting Nike's approach to things like this. Just do it. God says something, and he doesn't tell you how to do it, so you must be able to do it. He doesn't want you to discover how to do it. He would tell you. And so uh, let's back up in our thinking for a second and kind of support that. What is the answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, right? That's the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16. The doctrine of salvation is threefold in the Bible. One commentator put it this way, there is only one salvation, which is a gracious gift of God, accessed by faith alone, but salvation is like a beautiful flower that buds, blossoms, and gives fruit. It is a single concept with different forms, justification, sanctification, glorification. When a person believes, God justifies them he declares them righteous based on the work of Jesus on the cross and their believing him. Abraham believed God and it was accredited to him as righteousness. From that moment on, Jesus is working to sanctify you. He is changing you moment by moment, day by day. He will present you faultless in heaven. Having begun the work, he is faithful to complete it and the completion is called glorification. When I have my resurrected body, my resurrection body, when I am changed and perfect, then I will be glorified, never to sin again. Speaking to any believer in any century, the Lord promised that after he ascended into heaven, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give it to you, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And so Jesus is essentially saying in a very emotional, loving way, don't be troubled, don't be afraid, 
because I give you my peace. I left it for you. It belongs to you right now. You don't have to discover it. It's part of your salvation. And so we need to sometimes shake ourselves awake and say, oh, Jesus said he left me his peace, that it belongs to me. I can have that now. Now, it can still be a struggle because the world is coming against us. The flesh is coming against us. The devil and his uh, you know, advocates are coming against us. But nevertheless, we can, for every, you know, maybe three steps forward, we have one step back, but we make progress and experience more and more of his peace. And hopefully as we mature in the sense of getting older in the Lord, we experience his peace a lot sooner and deeper than we did when we were younger Christians. D.L. Moody, great American evangelist, wrote, a great many people are trying to make peace. It has already been done. God has not left it for us to do. All we have to do is to enter into it or believe. Now, this imagery of being tied by a rope lends itself to a devotional application. It would have to be just the right length, right? Not too long, not too short. If it was too long, they might go overboard. If it was too short, they couldn't do their duty. There's an old expression that we don't use anymore about giving a person enough rope, right? And that's the idea here. You need to have just the right amount of rope. Now, we have lots of freedom as Christians. And by freedom, I mean to uh, partake of things that are in the gray area. You know, there's certain things you can't do as a Christian, but there's a lot of things in, the, in a gray area where, you know, can I, do, can I go to a movie? Can I watch television? Can I smoke? Can I chew? Can I go out with girls that do? Uh, you know, that kind of thing. And, and a lot of it, we have freedom in that area. Beware too short a rope, however, because it renders you legalistic and joyless and fearful. Uh, and you just, you just have to be honest with yourself if you're a legalistic person, if you're the kind of person that wants to put rules that are not really in the Bible on your life and project them onto others and say, this is holy living. And, and, and so, I mean, the Bible, if the Bible is silent about something or if it doesn't prohibit something, then people have a liberty in that area. And so you need to realize that maybe you're a little bit legalistic. Your rope is a little bit too short. You don't want to lengthen it too much because it might stumble you, but you have to realize that legalism doesn't help. Too much rope and your liberty, liberty rather, will stumble you first and then others. Uh, you, know, they're, uh, you know, hey, I've got liberty. Okay, that's great. I can do this, okay? I can do it to this point, okay? Uh, can I talk to you about alcohol? Sure, Gene, Pastor Gene, anytime. Uh, you want to, I wish I could tell you not to drink. It's, you know, it's just a thing with me. But uh, if you want to drink, you have to do it as unto the Lord, right? Not stumbling other people. And you can't be drunk. Paul the Apostle says you can't be drunk. When are you drunk? I don't know. Well, Highway Patrol thinks they know. So whenever you blow a certain number, right, then you're drunk. And so, so if you're a Christian, you have the liberty to drink, don't get drunk. So, you know, it's like, it's like a, you know, in these movies and stuff, people always go right up to the fence. You know, there's a fence separating you from some evil or bad guy or something. You go right up to the fence where they can grab you. Stay back. Don't go up to the stupid, you know, stay back. And, and so, if, so people who exercise liberty often exercise too much liberty. People who are legalistic don't exercise enough. And so bear with, you know, be, understand who you are. Figure out your personality and whether you're a legalist. And it's not all, all or nothing. You can be legalistic in one area and libertine at the same time in another. 
I mean, you just need to, it's your walk with the Lord. And the way to do it is you say, Lord, you know, is, should I be doing this? Is this something you want? Do I need this? I mean, what, what's the deal? Because Peter says you could come any second. And it's not that I want, you know, I'll be embarrassed or weirded out. I guess I could be, but I want to be serving you and bringing people to the Lord. So give that some thought. Verse 4, trust in the Lord forever, for in Yah the Lord is everlasting strength. Albert Barnes wrote, let your confidence in God on no occasion fail. Let no calamity, no adversity, no persecution, no poverty, no trial of any kind prevent your entire confidence in him. Uh, more language scholar stuff, Lord, all capital is, we pronounce it Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. And so here it is Yahweh, Yah, Yahweh. Now, we don't even know for certain how Yahweh is to be pronounced because we can't be sure of the original vowels that went with the letters Y-H-W-H. Because the Jews were afraid of mispronouncing it or writing it incorrectly when copying scrolls, they eventually stopped using it, stopped pronouncing it, and instead they substituted the word Adonai. In your Bible, when you see Lord in all capital letters, it is Adonai, which is a substitution for the name of God, which is Y-H-W-H, or maybe Yahweh. Go for it. There's so much written on this. You know, just get into it if you want to. Uh, it, it's a fascinating thing. We sing choruses that feature many names of our God. And that's, a, uh, you know, without being technical, that's what they're doing here. They're using different names of God to bring glory to him. Every name of God has a different emphasis upon his nature and character. And while some say that our modern choruses are too repetitive, so were they in Bible times. Repetition is, is good. There's nothing wrong with that. And so, uh, you know, uh, there's no one style of music that God prefers other than 70s rock and roll. But, uh, you know... We can praise the Lord a lot of different ways. Verse 5, he uh, brings down those who dwell on high, the lofty city. He lays it low. He lays it low to the ground. He brings it down to the dust. The foot shall tread it down, the feet of the poor and the steps of the needy. The lofty city in prophecy is future Babylon on the Euphrates River. One of the things the Lord does just prior to his second coming is destroy utterly end times Babylon that has been rebuilt as the commerce and government center of the world. It's recorded in chapter 17 and 18 of the Revelation, followed by chapter 19, the second coming. Verse 7, and the way of the just is uprightness. Most upright, you weigh the path of the just. The just are believers. They've been justified just as if they'd never sinned. The way of the just is their path. It's going to be fraught with peril in the time of Jacob's trouble. Should we blame God for that? No. Evil is the fault of mankind. God sent Jesus to die and rise from the dead to put things right. I hate it when on, in a movie or television, uh, there's something happens and people question God and the religious professional can't give an answer. It's like, who knows? God moves in mysterious ways. And, you know, obviously we need to be sensitive to answering people in their time of tragedy. But the reason terrible things happen is men are wicked. There is evil in the world led in by our original parents. And God has done everything that can be supernaturally done to counter it. He had a great plan. 
He's going to come himself, die in your place, rise from the dead, and put an end to it. And he's going to do it. You say, well, when? It's been a long time. No, no, it hasn't. It's only been a few days in God's mind. We're dealing with God. And my answer now, though, is it is taking as long as it needs to take. Can't be rushed because of the human heart and its wickedness and its unwillingness to yield. And so, um, you know, way, the way of the justice, uprightness, and God weighs their path. Any trouble a believer experiences in any dispensation is like that of Job. It is weighed perfectly. It's not lighter or heavier than God permits. God never allows Satan to put his finger on the scale. Read Job chapters 1 and 2. You could say that God measured out a, a punishment that for Job or a, tr a trial for Job, but he gave the devil certain boundaries and, and he could not go beyond them. If your path seems too heavy for you at times, it isn't. Jesus is hoping to teach you to cast your, hairs, uh, your cares upon him. His burden is light, he says. Don't be anxious for anything. We're to be like Alfred E. Newman, who famously would say, What? Me worry? Because you have the Lord. Verse 8, Yes, in the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you. The desire of our soul is for your name and for the remembrance of you. God's judgments is a one-word description of the great tribulation. The Jewish remnant wait for the Lord to return. In the Revelation, we read that at his glorious return, Jesus will have on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Their remembrance here sounds like Jews looking up and seeing the one they once crucified and coming to faith in him. Verse 9, with my soul, I have desired you in the night. Yes, by my spirit within me, I will seek you early. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. No bitterness, no accusing God of being unfair or unloving. On top of that, they understand that they are living in a unique dispensation when God's judgments, the great tribulation, have a purpose, and that is to reveal to sinners his righteousness. Many will not recognize it and come to him still, but at least he's trying. Scholars further say about this word repetition, Sometimes a word is repeated because there are multiple meanings for the word. For instance, you will have calming peace or maybe harmonious peace or compensating peace. How about prosperous peace or maybe even healing peace? All these adjectives and definitions of shalom. Of course, translators cannot list all of these in a translation, so they sum it up as perfect peace. And so the question is, what peace, peace in your troubles do you need and are you hoping for? Believe God. It doesn't mean he'll end the trouble. It means he'll give you his peace. That, or actually, you'll remember that he's already given you his peace. It's a gift. Matthew Henry commented, when Jesus died, he left a will in which he gave his soul to his father, his body to Joseph of Arimathea, his clothes to the soldiers, his mother to John. But to his disciples who left all to follow him, he left not silver or gold, but something far better, his peace. It belongs to us. Have you received that Lord who promises peace? It's easy to forget that the time of Jacob's trouble is the greatest season of evangelism that the world will ever know. His judgments attempt to clarify that there is none righteous, not even one, but that all have sinned. The gospel is made plain, and men have a choice to reject or receive his gift of salvation. Verse 10, let grace be shown to the wicked, Yet he will not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he will deal unjustly. 
and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. Lord, when your hand is lifted up, they will not see, but they will see and be ashamed for their envy of people. Yes, the fire of your enemies shall devour them. In the millennium following the tribulation, the world will experience the most perfect environment and condition since the Garden of Eden. People's needs will be provided for immediately. There will not be any hard labor. Life will be easy. Many still refuse to learn righteousness. Even in the best conditions, with Jesus ruling and reigning on the earth, with us helping him in our glorified bodies, they refuse to believe Jesus and be saved. At the end of the millennium, in fact, there's a substantial revolution uh, against God's authority. Verse 12, Lord, you will establish peace for us, for you have also done all our works in us. This is an Old Testament way of saying all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purposes. The Lord is working out in history the plan he formulated before creation to save mankind and he graciously includes us in that plan, giving us works to discover and do, which further uh, his kingdom. Verse 13, O Lord, our God, masters besides you have uh, had dominion over us, but by you only we make mention of your name. They're dead, they won't live. They're deceased, they won't rise. Therefore you have punished and destroyed them and made all their memory to perish. Masters besides God refers to Gentile rulers who oppress the Jews. Biblical guys like Nebuchadnezzar, extra biblical guys like Hitler, they will not be resurrected to, uh, excuse me, will they not be resurrected to suffer eternal conscious torment in the lake of fire? Well, they will. William William McDonald rather explains it this way. This verse does not deny the bodily resurrection of the wicked. It merely promises that the Gentile powers that they represented won't be restored. And so, This may not mean much to us, but for a Jew who's constantly being conquered by some other uh, empire, the promise here is that in the future, in the millennium and beyond, there aren't going to be any empires that rise up to challenge you. You will be the central focus, the number one nation on the earth, and that will continue into eternity. You've increased the nation, O Lord, you've increased the nation. You are glorified. You have expanded all the borders of the land. Mention of the land reminds us that Isaiah was describing physical things, not just spiritual characteristics. This isn't an allegory for a spiritual realm or spiritual blessings. It is real land on the earth. Uh, and, and, And so, you know, the church doesn't claim the spiritual blessings of a promised land that were given to Israel. Israel is going to live in her promised land where she is now. It's physical, not allegorical. Uh, O Lord, in trouble they have visited you. They poured out a prayer when your chastening was upon them. As a woman with child is in pain and cries out in her pain, when she draws near the time of her delivery, so have we been in your sight, O Lord. Jesus described the future time of Jacob's trouble like a woman's pain in childbirth. The judgments of the great tribulation are contractions in that they start slow, but then come faster and faster. Verse 18, we have been with child, we have been in pain, We have, as it were, brought forth wind. We have not accomplished any deliverance in the earth, nor have the inhabitants of the world fallen. This is tribulation Jews admitting that the nation of Israel was an epic failure throughout history, grumbling during their exodus, worshiping a golden calf, refusing to enter the promised land. That was only the beginning of their failures. Your dead shall live. Together with my dead body, they shall rise. 
Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust, for your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Old Testament saints are resurrected at the second coming. The church is resurrected and raptured before the second coming, before the time of Jacob's trouble. Come, my people, enter your chambers, verse 20, and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. The indignation is the time of Jacob's trouble, another name for it. Jews are instructed to hide until it ends. Jesus told them that in uh, Matthew chapter 24. He says, when you see the Antichrist revealed in the temple, defiling it, get out of Dodge. Run. Uh, hopefully you're not pregnant. Hopefully it's not the Sabbath because you need to run to safety. Uh, where do they go? Micah 2.12 reveals that place of refuge will be ancient Basra, which is modern-day Petra, the rock city of Petra. There God will supernaturally protect all who uh, make it there. Verse 21, For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. And so this is a, a purpose, really, of the Lord during the Great Tribulation. He's going to finally finish punishing those who have rejected him and uh, persecuted his people. Now, when Jesus comes back, it's going to be at the Battle of Armageddon on the earth. All the nations gathered there turn against him. It's not a fair fight. Jesus quickly dispatches them. I was watching an ad for something, and they said, how, how many men do they have? And she said, six. And the hero said, why so few? And that's the idea. You know, it's like all the armies of the world, nuclear weapons, you know, all the kind of stuff, and Jesus destroys them with the power of his word. It's not a fight. There will be blood. The Revelation describes the blood of that battle. Blood from the human armies Jesus defeats at his second coming might be pooled as high as a horse's bridle for 180 miles in all directions. The Great Tribulation is worse than anything could ever possibly be, worse than we can even imagine it. Because not only are there physical problems on the earth, there's killing and mutilating, and there's demons uh, that are doing things to people as well. Uh, believe me, you don't want to be there. William Temple said, the only thing of our very own which we contribute to our salvation is the sin which makes it necessary. That's one of the greatest things I've ever heard. You can say to somebody, hey, you know, I learned Sunday that I contributed something to my salvation, which is a heresy, right? Jesus did it all. It's by faith alone through grace alone, right? You contribute nothing. Well, no, that's not true. You contributed your sin, which is what made it necessary for Jesus to come. So a question here for you, have you received the Lord? If you're not a Christian, the Lord is here by his spirit, working in your life, working on your heart, removing blindness, so that you can see that you're a sinner in need of salvation. And today ought to be the time of your salvation.